Now what I'd like you to do is take your Bibles and turn to me, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses uh, 1 through 16. We're going to look more specifically at verses uh, 13 to 16, but I, I want to read, starting from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1 uh, through verse 16. All right, here's what uh, Scripture says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. If you are of a certain age, you know who this man is. His name is Alan Funt. And for uh, many years, he was creator and host of a show that broadcasts for the first time on August 10th, 1948, called Candid Camera. Now, uh, you know the, the, the premise of Candid Camera. Uh, the, the producers were the master of using hidden cameras. They put people in unexpected situations where they were facing unique things and by with hidden cameras they would film the reactions and then everybody would laugh. Well, uh, let me tell you about one particular episode they did and involved an elevator. You know what to do when you get in an elevator. You walk in the elevator, you find your floor the uh, button and you push the button for it and then you turn around and you face the door while the elevator moves. Uh, they were testing this premise. Uh, so one person, the, 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 the victim in this uh, episode, got on the elevator and pushed the button. And then following that, three more people got on the elevator, made sure that their floors were selected, and they faced the back wall. And, and the poor person who had got on first, just you could see just kind of their confusion as they stood there and looked, what, what's going on here? What, what, something's unusual. The elevator moved to another floor, and, and another person got on, also in on the trick. They selected there and also faced the back wall. Every person who they tried this with, every person, without exception, eventually turned around and faced the back wall, just like everybody else. Apparently, this is the normal thing that you're supposed to do. 
It's not easy to live differently than the people around you. There is within our culture this tremendous pressure to conform. But from the beginning, the Lord Jesus told us that his followers, that we would be different people. And the changes that we make in the world are rooted in this difference, these differences. He told us about how we're different. For example, followers of Jesus, when we come across a conflict, we don't pour gasoline on the flames of conflict. We make peace. That's one of the ways that we're different. We followers of Jesus are merciful. We are meek. We, uh, we have a hunger in us for righteousness, for what is right to be exemplified in our lives. We want to know what's right. We want to do what's right. We have within us, at the very core of who we are, a pursuit of purity that extends all the way out in the things that we do, the choices uh, that we make. But uh, being different like that, being different like that sometimes incites opposition, insults, false accusations. It's countercultural values that Jesus calls us to. And there's a lot of pressure in the world to conform. We could respond to this pressure in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, there is the temptation to pull back and to form our own small communities. We'll live together as followers of Jesus in our own little world, and you guys do what you want out there, and we'll do what we want in here. We'll form this kind of a semi-monastic life. We'll keep to ourselves, and you keep to your, you leave us alone, and that's the deal that we'll have. That's one temptation we could face. Or sometimes we face the temptation to just let things slide a little bit. You know, if if these values that we have get us in trouble, if we just kind of pull back a little bit and 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 um, not try to stick out so much, just try to compromise here and there and get along a little bit, make things easier. It will make things easier on us. Sometimes. Sometimes followers of Jesus are irritating. We're like the hangnail on the thumb of society. And, you know, if we didn't stick out so much, it'd just be a lot easier for everybody. There's that temptation. Before we succumb to either of those temptations, Jesus moves on in the Sermon on the Mount in his introduction from talking about our character to talking about our influence. That's what he does, this transition from verse 12 to verse 13, our character to our influence. And Jesus argues here that we make a difference in the world because we are a different sort of people. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes this transition quite well, uh, the British preacher. Look what he says. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. It's the difference. It's the difference that is crucial. To help us understand our influence, the Lord Jesus in these few verses gave us two images, two ways to think about ourselves, and then he issued two warnings to go with each of those images. That's how I want to unfold the text. That's how we're going to walk through the text. The basic message of this text, of course, is we make a difference by our difference. And let's see how Jesus envisioned this would happen. So we're going to talk first about this image number one. Image number one, we're salt. You are the salt, verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. Very familiar passage. 
And, and the pattern, of the same type of sentence happens in verse 14. You are the light of the world. And each of those words in those sentences are important. Let's talk about them one at a time. Jesus begins with you, and it's emphatic. You, and it's plural. You, y'all. Yous. You guys. You. All of you, the ones I'm talking to, the ones that Jesus was, uh, that were gathered around him, you. The ones who first picked up this letter when Matthew wrote it, uh, this gospel, you. You who are followers of Jesus, you. Not somebody else, but you. Next word, are. Present tense, are right now. Not should be, not could be, not ought to be, but right now, you are the. Not a, but the. You are the salt of the earth. You are the ones that Jesus has appointed to serve. He has no plan B. You are the salt. You're the salt. You're the only salt that Jesus has. You are the salt of the earth. Now, that's surprising that Jesus would, would, would use this type of language. Uh, his followers are relatively, at this point in time, his followers are new to following him. This is early in his ministry. See, he's not talking to a large group. He's not talking to an influential group. But he says, you, you are the salt of the whole earth. You are the light of the whole world. Not an influential group, not a large group. The first readers of Matthew were not a large or influential group. This is a pattern throughout history with Jesus' followers. Look at what Eugene Peterson said. 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history, capped by a full exposition in Jesus Christ, tell us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than is accepted is dismissed by far more people than embrace it, and has been either attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it has given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant. You are on a mission from Jesus, regardless of your power, regardless of your popularity, and your mission is tied directly to your identity and the character that flows from your allegiance to him. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt, that's the image here. We're focusing on that salt. Uh, one of the best commentaries on the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, identifies 21 possible uses of salt in the ancient world. Which one do you suppose Jesus had in mind? Well, the uh, predominant opinion seems to be he's talking about the preservative effects of salt. Salt is a preservative it keeps meat, in this day before refrigeration, it keeps food from spoiling. It keeps meat and fish from spoiling. <coughs> Excuse me. Think about Jesus' audience here. Who this first group of people that he's talking to, they were fishermen. 
They would catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, and then they would ship it down to Jerusalem. Fish does not remain fresh for very long. So imagine what they would do. They would take salt and they would treat their fish. They'd rub salt into the fish to preserve it, to keep it, so that when it got to market in Jerusalem, it was still uh, edible. Salt is a preservative. Now, notice when he says this, you, you are the salt of the earth. The implications of that. Jesus is, uh, two of them I can think of, Jesus is drawing a distinction. You are different than the earth. His followers are going to be different sort of people. There's a distinction. You are salt. They are not salt. But if, the, if what he's thinking about is preservation too, what is he saying about the earth? He's saying that the earth is prone to corruption, decay, to rot. Uh, if you take a high school history, uh, high school science class at any point in your life, if you've taken one, you have learned or will learn about the laws of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics, this will inspire you, I'm sure. The second law of thermodynamics is that the entropy of any isolated system always increases. What that means is, Things tend to move from organization to disorganization, from order to disorder. That's how things just work. It happens in chaos, uh, in chemistry, in a closed system. Uh, disorganization, disorder always increases. It happens in chemistry. It happens in your house. How is it that your house, you can clean it? It's beautiful on Saturday, and then by Sunday afternoon, it's a disaster. It's the law. It's legal. It's the law of thermodynamics. Things tend to move from order to disorder. It happens in the human heart. An untended human heart moves from order to disorder. It happens in society. Society is prone to rot, to corruption, to disorder. I don't think I need to make a case for that, do I? I think the news has been doing quite a good job for me in the last few weeks. And followers of Jesus into this uh, decaying world come as salt to push back, to preserve, to heal. Paul Copin wrote a book a few years ago called, Is God a Moral Monster? And he traced the effect that followers of Jesus have had in the world, in particular in the Western world, and how we have pushed back against societal rot. We've played a pivotal role, he says, in these things. Here's the list, 2,000 years of history. We have eradicated slavery opposed infanticide and infant exposure, eliminated the gladiatorial games, elevated the status and rights of women, promoted higher education, produced great works of literature and philosophy and art and music, established modern science. I'll stop here for a minute. I just this morning read uh, a paragraph from John Lennox. John Lennox is a British mathematician. He's a follower of Jesus. Uh, He was talking about why he rejects atheism. Well, I'm a Christian, so I do not believe in atheism, but I also reject atheism because I'm a mathematician. Because atheism rejects the rationality that is at the heart of mathematics. Followers of Jesus establish modern science. His list continues. 
We've built hospitals. We've advocated human rights and concern for the poor. And we've created a worldwide ethnic community. Christianity is alone among the major world religions of the world and that we have spread out beyond the confines and the people groups of which we started. Most Hindus are still Indian. Most Buddhists still live in East Asia. Uh, uh, but uh, most uh, the Islamic world is centered around the Arab world. But followers of Jesus are found all over the place and in every culture. This is what we do. We're salt of the earth. That's a specific, uh, that's example that Paul Copen wants you to think of the world in general. Here's a more specific example that has to do with the city of Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Tennessee, during the 1970s and 80s, was a really struggling city. Uh, divorce was rampant. Half of all births in Chattanooga were to unwed mothers. Single women were the sole providers in 30% of homes, uh, and many of those homes were living in poverty. So in August of 1997, a group of uh, church leaders and civic leaders and business leaders in the community got together, and they formed a nonprofit organization called First Things First. Brad Reimer was a businessman uh, who was in that meeting where he first heard the statistics about Chattanooga and listened to what he said. He said, the information we received about the state of marriage and families in our community really shocked me, he says. After hearing a certain amount of it, I went home and prayed, Lord, use me to help you save marriages. So this organization started. And their goals were to decrease divorce help marriages, and reduce teen pregnancy. One of the things that they did most predominantly is uh, offered seminars and classes on strengthening the family. One of their seminar titles, you'll like this, it's called How to Avoid Marrying a Jerk. So, good. Discovering the love of your life all over again. And uh, boot camp for new dads. So they put these classes into practice. They promoted them in churches. They allowed churches to borrow them and families to borrow the material. As of 2006, this is a while ago, but 10 years after the program began, within 10 years, the divorce rate in Chattanooga was down by 25%. Cases of children having children, teen pregnancies, were down by 26%. And by many measurable standards, the fathers were spending more time with their children and were more aware of the role that they play in their kids' development. Transformed a city. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, along with that image, of course, comes a warning. And here's warning number one. And warning number one has to do with conformity. Conformity. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Here's how you would get salt in Galilee. If you wanted salt, the, the easiest ways or the most common ways to get salt were you could go to the, the Mediterranean Sea and you could gather up some seawater and allow the water to evaporate. And when it did, you, what you would have left would be salt, largely salt. That was the purest way to get salt. The other way you could get salt in Galilee is to go to the Dead Sea, collect some of the water, the water would evaporate, and you would have a white powder, and some of it would be salt. 
But the Dead Sea is so contaminated with other chemicals, had a completely different level of purity. And if you collected that from the Dead Sea and you had a pile of it and it sat around for any length of time, the sodium chloride, the salt that was in it, would easily leach out of that pile. It was the most soluble part. And you might have just left a pile of white powder that looked like salt, but was not salt at all. It was not salty salt. One way to deal with the pressure in this world of being different is just to conform, just to lose our uniqueness. If we're like everybody else, we won't be ostracized, we won't be insulted, we won't be picked on. If your focus is more on trying to figure out how you can fit in and still squeak by as a Christian... You're going to lose your effectiveness. Is that what you're trying to do? Are you trying to fit in? If I, if I, if I just, if I can just um, fit in and not stick out too much, but I got to, I got to maintain a good balance so that my conscience as a Christian doesn't bother me. Then, then I'll be okay, and I, I won't be a bother to anybody, and people won't bother me. It's my greatest failure as a high school student and a follower of Jesus. I lament how poorly I represented Jesus in the halls of the Perry Central High School. Tim Keller spoke to the Houses of Parliament in June 2018. He was invited to speak as an American citizen, highly unusual. He was invited to speak at the British House of Parliaments for the parliamentary prayer breakfast. And he spoke about this passage of scripture and he said to the British lawmakers that were there, he said, if followers of Jesus are going to contribute to British society in this world, in this day, you must allow them to keep their distinctiveness. Allow them to be, uh, he didn't say this, weird. Let them be unusual. See, there is increasing pressure in our world for us to conform, particularly in the area of our views of sexuality. We need to conform to what everyone around us wants us to do, and thereby, with conforming, we lose our influence. You are the salt of the earth. I want you to think for a minute about this verse. When you think about this passage, I want you to think about your sphere of influence. You watch the news, and it's frustrating and depressing, and it's always happening somewhere else, somewhere out there. Someone out there, over there, ought to do something about this. I want you to think about your sphere of influence, though, where you are. Forget just a minute, too, about politics. All the evangelicals are ever asked about in the world are our views on abortion and on sexuality and why are we so out of tune with everybody else. Forget, set aside those two issues for just a minute and I want you to think about you being the salt of the earth where you are. As if Jesus had said, you are the salt of the office. You are the salt of the cul-de-sac. You are the salt of the family reunion. What of Jesus will you take into that place where, where he has put you? You are the salt of where you live. Jerry Locke tells a story about a man who had a canary. 
canary would sing beautiful music like canaries are wont to do at a beautiful tune. This man thought that maybe his canary would enjoy some sunshine and some fresh air. So during the summer, uh, all day, every day during the summer, he would take the canary outside and he would hang the cage in a tree outside so the canary could get some fresh air and, and sunshine. The canary also developed friendships. The neighborhood was populated by sparrows. And the sparrows were intrigued by this cage and this yellow bird inside this cage. So the sparrows would come and hang out with the uh, canary. And at first, the canary was very nervous by these strange-looking uh, and sounding birds. But over time, uh, very slowly and imperceptibly, the canary started to sing the songs of the sparrows. It's not very attractive. By the end of the summer, what this man had, he started the summer with a, uh, a canary with a beautiful song. By the end of the summer, what he had was a yellow sparrow. Conformity. Conformity ruins your ability to make a difference as Jesus has called us to do. That's image number one and warning number one. Let's move on to image number two. Image number two is light, light. You are the light of the world. Now, Jesus has already been called the light in Matthew 4. Uh, he is the light that has come. Uh, and now he's telling uh, his followers, you are the light. If the emphasis of salt, that image is on preservation, the emphasis of the light imagery is on revelation. Revelation. That's the point of the light. Revelation. You are the ones who are to speak the truth from God into the world in which he has called you. Now, again, there's implications of this. So if we're salt of the earth, we're supposed to be distinct. We're the light of the world. We're supposed to be distinct and that we're light and they're not. Well, the other implication of that is that the world is in darkness. He's already said the world is prone to rot. Now the world is, is in darkness, despite what they think about themselves. Uh, the movement, the philosophical movement that led to the founding of our own country, uh, in part, was the enlightenment. The world is enlightened. Jesus says, you're not as enlightened as you think. You need light. And he sent his followers, you, to be the light of the world. To, you're to be a mouthpiece, a spokesman for his truth, bringing light to a dark world. Now here's the warning that goes along with this image. And the warning is cowardice. Cowardice. Don't hide the light. You can't hide a hill that's on a, a, a town that's been built on a hill. You, you, it would be silly to light a lamp and put a bowl under it and hide it. Don't be a coward as light of the world. Instead, let your light shine, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds. Now, good deeds, what is he thinking about? He's just thinking about the sort of life we lead as followers of Jesus. He changes us, and when we live out who we are, we do things differently. We have this impulse within us to reach out and help other people. We're moved to help other people. Now, there's something interesting we should think about. In a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to make it over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Look at Matthew 6, 1 in your Bibles. Matthew says, uh, well, quoting Jesus, Jesus says, Be careful not 
to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So I have a question to ask Jesus. Jesus, here's my question. Are we to do our good deeds in front of others so that they may see them? Or are we to avoid practicing our righteousness before others so they don't see them? Do you see that? Well, in in chapter 6, he's talking to people who are inclined to do good deeds before others in order to be rewarded by them for doing their good deeds. In which case, you're not actually helping others, you're just helping yourself. You're helping yourself have a better reputation, so I'm going to do good deeds in front of other people so they see me and give me credit. Jesus says, no, 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 no. But... Chapter 5, if you're going to do good deeds before them so they see and glorify your Father in heaven, aha, now you are fulfilling the purpose, the mission that I have given you. This is what followers of Jesus do. We don't help ourselves, we help others. We soothe the sorrowing. We care for the afflicted. We guide those who are confused. We teach the ignorant. We protect the vulnerable. That's what we do as an expression of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. We do it because this is what Jesus has already done for us. We were in darkness and the Lord Jesus came as light to teach us and give us the truth. Our lives were subject to decay. And the Lord Jesus took to himself all of that rottenness, all of that corruption. He took it to himself on the cross when he died in our place, suffering the wrath of God that we deserved, paying the penalty that we owed, dying, rising again, ascending into heaven, and giving life to all who will turn and receive it from him. Life and forgiveness to all who will believe. That's been our experience We have received this mercy from Jesus, and so we go and we help others. We're salt, we're light, because Jesus has already been salt and light to us. Now, if you're old enough to know who Alan Funt is, you are also old enough to recognize these characters. Barney Fife and Gomer Pyle. Barney Fife and Gomer Pyle, of course, were characters on uh, the Andy Griffith show. You know the Andy Griffith show, Andy uh, Andy Griffith played a a sheriff in a small town, Mayberry, and uh, that was his role. Well, one time, uh, Andy Griffith, Andy Taylor was out of town, and he appointed Barney Fife, his deputy, to be acting sheriff. And And Barney Fife appointed Gomer Pyle to be acting deputy. You don't want to be in that town. Well, Barney Fife and Gomer Pyle were walking down the street, and they saw down the street and across the way a little bit, the bank, and the bank was being robbed. There were robbers at the bank, robbing from the bank at that moment. And Barney and and Gomer hid behind a car, and they were were looking at what was happening. And, And Gomer turned to Barney and said, Shazam, except you know how he said it, Shazam, Shazam. He said, we need the police. And Barney turned to him and said, we are the police. You watch the news. And you look at what's going on and you think to yourself, man, the world needs help. And Jesus says, you are the help. Let's pray, shall we? 
Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for your kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. Uh, We thank you, even as we uh, have already done so, for his broken body and his shed blood for us. We thank you that we have been the objects of his mercy while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now we take up this commission that you have given to us. We who are your people, we are this and, and we're thankful to you for this call that you have issued to us. And I pray that you would grant that we might be faithful salt and faithful light in this world. Lord, um, you know the pressures that we feel to be different and how it would be easier just to, to withdraw or to conform I pray that you would give us courage in the midst of it. That you would enable us to embrace the weirdness of being a follower of Jesus and make a difference by our difference. Lord, help us, even as we sit here now, we think about our neighborhoods and our families and work. We think about the people there. Enable us by your kindness to represent you well as salt and light, and so bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Do that for us and in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.